Hello, this is Conversations About Adoption, and I'm your host, Jen. If you haven't listened before, what you can expect are organic, raw, and typically unedited conversations between myself and other adoptees or first parents. Occasionally, I may have other guests on the podcast, but it will be relevant to adoption. For example, in this episode, I spoke with Barbara Raymond, author of the book, The Baby Thief, where she delves into Georgia Tan and the Memphis branch of the Tennessee Children's Home. It has been estimated that Georgia stole approximately 5,000 babies and children, then turned around and sold them to the wealthy and famous, even using some of the babies as bribes or blackmail to manipulate lawmakers. Some 500 or so children died while in her care. Barbara wrote an article for a magazine in the 1990s, which eventually led into a full-blown investigation into Georgia and how this was able to happen in Memphis when it did. I hope you enjoy this conversation about adoption with Barbara Raymond as much as I did. Please remember to subscribe so you're notified when new episodes are available. Okay, so I'm really excited I get to talk to Barbara Raymond today. One of the most important books, I believe, for the adoption community is The Baby Thief. And, uh, I did a video on TikTok and I was like, she's the woman with the ovaries to go and do all the digging in the dirt to find out, you know, and save Georgia Tan from, you know, obscurity, basically. So um, what I wanted to find out is you originally wrote an article about Georgia Tan. Yes. In the 1990s, I, I wrote a lot for women's magazines then, and uh, I knew Good housekeeping liked reunion stories. Um, my children, my ex-husband and I had moved from Buffalo, New York to Cleveland. And in the Cleveland Plain Dealer, there was an article one Sunday that had been syndicated from the LA Times about a woman named Alma Sippo, whose child had been taken right out of her home. Georgia Tan had conned her. And actually the book starts with pretty much a little uh, thing about that. So I called my editor and I said, hey, you like reunion stories. Do you want me to follow this up? And she said, sure. And so I, I called Alma and she started telling me more about Georgia Tan. And I, there wasn't much, like when I started to write my book, when I would go online to research Georgia Tan, I would only get back my own article. But Alma had, had help um, the reason um, the woman Alma is the woman whose child was stolen, and she was helped by a woman named Denny Glad, who was um, like a, a pioneer, and she worked out of Tennessee. She had an organization called the Right to Know. They helped adopted people and birth uh, first parents find each other. So Alma knew more about Georgia Tan than the average person. So I called my editor back and she said, why don't we make it an article about Georgia Tan and not, and put Alma in it and have pictures of her and her daughter. But, you know, so it made a big splash. Um, they, uh, the editors there said that this article, and I think they called it, um, it was pretty sensational title and not quite true. The woman who stole 5,000 babies or something like that. And I don't know how many were stolen, whatever. But it was the most commonly 
commonly used, it, it, it was the most popular article that they had ever run, except when Princess Diana gave birth to her first son. So, really? yeah. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's amazing that it was that popular of an article. And it's crazy, you know, you, you mentioned how, like, they really liked reunion stories. Do you remember when, before Maury Povich only did, like, you are the father stories and things like that? It was, um, he used to do just regular, like, talk shows. And the one time he did a reunion, an adoption reunion story, um, where he reunited a birth mother and her daughter, and they had no idea it was going to happen. And that was before I was really ready to search. And that was my trigger to search because I was watching it just bawling. And at the end, he started talking. They were like, you can look for mutual consent reunion registries online. And, you know, that's when people were starting to use the Internet to find each other. And that that's that's interesting because reunion stories were really big then. I remember that. Yeah, so now people find each other through DNA. But when I wrote the book, that wasn't available yet. No. So I would go to Memphis and I would go to uh, the main library there. And I would see people there and, you know, if they would find out that I had written an article, they were asking me to help them find their daughter. A couple thought maybe I was their daughter. Wow. Uh, it was so sad. And uh, Denny Glad helped them a lot. And of course now, uh, you know, the, the records in Tennessee are, are open. But Yeah. Yeah. That, and, but even then, like, I know you wrote in your book that she falsified a lot of documents and so that must make the searching a lot harder and it's good DNA is around when I searched in 2001 you know it was still like $400 per person to do DNA tests you know we're now with the commercial DNA it's it's really opened the floodgates for people to find each other so what led you to um researching and writing this book like i know you did the article there what was the catalyst that got you into digging deeper well i'm an adop adoptive mother as you probably know and i knew my daughter is probably the strongest person she is the strongest person i've ever met this part of the conversation, Barbara began telling me some of her daughter's story. I'd asked her what had led her to do this research to write the book about Georgia Tan, and that drive to understand the history of adoption came from raising an adopted child and witnessing certain struggles that they went through and understanding that this came from being adopted. Her daughter was a product of the Baby Scoop era, which was caused in large part, if not completely, by Georgia Tan. I advised Barbara that I was going to be removing the parts about her daughter, because in the adoptee community, we don't agree with others sharing the stories of adoptees, and that it is their story to share and theirs alone. She was completely understanding and apologized to me for oversharing. I realized more than say the average person writing an article for good housekeeping magazine i realized that there was more to adoption than people that they like to see the reunions but they mm -hmm. don't i don't really understand what it's like to be an adopted person 
or to be a mother whose child is lost to adoption. But I understood a little bit. Yeah. And so I thought, this is appalling. But when I started to write the book, I really didn't realize that Georgia Tan had anything to do with the institution of adoption. Nothing. Nothing had been written about it. There was very little written. Her records were closed. Yeah. It's all that. But I just thought she was like an old time baby seller. But even then, you know, I had by then two children. The idea of someone stealing my child was unbelievable to me. But as I started doing more research and I started reluctantly realizing that she, you know, popularized adoption and she commercialized it and she imbued it with secrecy by falsifying birth certificates, that it was very hard for me to realize that I was part of an institution. I mean, I have always felt guilty for being an adoptive mother. And yet, you know, my brain would tell me if I hadn't adopted Beth, someone else would have. It's not like I individually forced her mother it, it was the typical thing, you know, the, the grandmother is saying, you've got to relinquish the It child. was the baby scoop. Yeah. And, and it would have happened to me and my sisters. I grew up with my mother saying before I even knew about sex or babies or whatever. Mm-hmm. Irish Catholic, um, if you or your sisters get pregnant before you're married, it's off to Father Baker's, which was a maternity home attached to an orphanage. Oh, and my God. Home without the baby. And I'm thinking, what? I actually ended up doing volunteer work there in it when I was in high school because I was thinking even then I started to realize this is not right. But I knew I knew exactly that that would have happened to me. That's appalling but, that your mom like warned you that way. I I can't I she she wasn't a bad person. She, she had seven kids. She had gave birth to seven of us in 9 years. I mean, it's It was the time and it was the shame of it. The yeah, shame exactly. She wanted people, everything had to be. I think Georgia Tan gave um, mothers or grand, prospective grandparents. Yeah. Um, but then there was an excuse, you know, you didn't have to, it, you didn't have to like have people know that your daughter had gotten pregnant. Oh, I know. Yep. Yeah. I was a fibroid tumor. <laughs> my mother went to school the whole way through and my it was my grandmother that was like you know she took her to the doctor and the doctor's like well here's what we're gonna do and grandma was like okay yeah and it's just interesting because it was a different time people didn't know what they know now a big problem i have with like advocating for you know adoption reform and in my opinion you know adoption is unethical because of the way the laws are right now yes there's always going to be a need for children to have you know care outside of the home here and there where circumstances arise but having you know birth certificates altered and records sealed away and all of that to me is unethical like here i am 52 years old I have done the work. I know my entire story. I know everybody who's listed in my documents. I still can't get any of it. You know. In what state were you adopted? I was born in Pittsburgh. Now, 
I can get what's called an unofficial original birth certificate for $20 where they will pull my original and they will type up the information on a sheet of paper and mail it to me. That's great for people that don't have access to the first, you know, their parents' names. But like, I I wanted the actual birth certificate. Like I want, you know, I don't, I don't want this appeasement document, you know? And like once I, somebody said, you know, I was like, this is great. And somebody corrected me and they're like, it is, but it isn't. Because once they make a law like that, getting access to the original birth certificates is more difficult because they'll be like, well, you can get this. So why do you need it? You know, if you're just getting the information. So you're getting a copy of the original birth certificate, but you're not getting the original birth certificate. It's not even a copy. It's just the info typed on a paper. Oh, yeah. Because I mean, upstairs, I'm quite a bit older than you, but I mean, I have a copy of mine. I'm not adopted. and mm-hmm. but um, I have my amended one, you know, yeah. but I don't have the one with my birth parents' names on it. In this next section, Barbara is going to tell the story of the judge who handled the adoption of her daughter and an experience he had that caused him to change the way he handled adoptions which at the time was a little progressive and you'll see after that the edit's kind of rough because i go into talking about grandparents forcing their children to relinquish and how i really have a problem with that the adoption was to go through a particular uh, judge and he had had a disrupted sort of disrupted adoption a few years earlier. It was one of those baby something cases. A young woman had come from Italy. She was sent over by her family and she gave birth and her child was adopted or baby was uh, beginning to be adopted at least by a lawyer and his wife. And then it went before this judge or this judge had something to do with it. And then the the mom came to the judge afterwards and she said i i <clears throat> i had no support i had nobody with me i i want my baby back and the judge ruled that she should have her baby back but the lawyer and his wife moved to florida where another judge said they could keep the child so this particular judge said to himself he said, this is never going to happen in my court again. So his choice of wording was not probably the best, but he meant really well. He said, um, you will have a confrontation. You will meet the birth mother. No names will be exchanged. It will be in the hospital room. The baby will be there. A blood relative of the mother, the, the mother will be holding the baby. Her lawyer will be there. Um, a blood relative of the mother will be there. I would be there. My uh, husband then um, was there with our lawyer. We were told not to say anything. Um, the, But the thing is, it was the idea that he wanted the, um, the first mom to at least see who was 
adopting her baby. Now, how, how much you can see by, tell by looking at somebody, I really don't know, but he meant well. And then a month later, he decreed that you, that um, the, the man would meet him in chambers and he would ask her, is this really what you wanted? Is this mm. what you really wanted to do? That's different. Which, yes. And that's before and open adoptions really started getting popular. Right. These are their grandchildren. Like how, how can you just send your grandchild away like that? It just blows my mind. But it's that um, shame thing. So getting back to your drive for the book, um, you said, that, you know, yeah. knowing that your your daughter, you know, was adopted and you could see that it had an effect on her more than probably most people realized. And that kind of motivated you to start investigating further? Yeah. Well, like I said, when I first started it, I just thought it was a book about an old time baby seller. So yeah, I, I knew you know, adoption wasn't the, probably the easiest thing on earth. I mean, I knew a little more than the average person, yeah. but as I, as the years went on and I kept, you know, digging into this story and I began to realize how much Georgia Tan affected for, for example, before Georgia Tan made adoption popular, mm -hmm. uh, mothers were allowed to keep their children and in some cases they were forced in quotes to keep their children there were yes. after the acts that said that you know um a young mother and presumably a young father who didn't support their child you know could you know go to jail or something and one of those states that allowed that was the state that became tennessee hmm. so once she she made adoption popular and kind of into a business um then parents like my mother would have been, there's an out. You can place the baby for adoption. And yeah. Nobody was adopting children. Now right. it was this, you know, I couldn't. A solution to everybody's problem. Yeah. It's so, you know, and. Um, but not really. <laughs> no, I, I know. So. Uh, That's how I try to like, rain it back in onto the book a little more well, let's do the book <laughs> yeah so um when you decided to get into this book did you have any idea how deep it was going to go no because I just thought she was an old-fashioned baby seller so I thought she only directly hurt the people she directly touched yeah know the mothers and fathers that she stole the children from the children themselves and you know their adoptive parents and yeah that was all in the past to me because she died in 1950 yeah. and so you know I was 40 something years later getting onto this story and very grateful that some of the people who knew her were still alive at that yeah. point but I just thought it was an old story and then I started to realize that little by little, you know, like, wait a minute, um, I was shocked to find, for example, to to find that adoption had barely been practiced before. Georgia yeah, Tan. that's that one fact that you state in the beginning of the book, how the Boston Children's Home, they would only do like how many a year? And 
five and that year she had 206 I think it said in the book. yeah the books are upstairs so yeah like four years I, later after she had been there she facilitated 206 in that year and that's that's crazy and I you know because of your book and you talk about the syndication and all that I had one of those uh, trial memberships for newspapers.com and um which that would have made your work a lot easier back then uh, to yeah, have something like indexed. that. I, my eyes were falling out. I was going through microfiche. And oh, microfiche. I can't even imagine. But I found all these clips of all these kids like advertised in the same week in newspapers all across the country. You know, like in New York and Kansas and Texas and California and Nebraska like all these different newspapers, the same photo of the same child. Oh, and the yeah, Kansas. and then the one with the 25 children at Christmas, you know, mm -hmm. I found that syndicated too. It's crazy to actually go back and see it. And then um, there was another clip that I found um, where there was this like adoptive parent commu uh, community in california i i forget what they called themselves now but they named it in such a way like they were for the protection of adoptees or something and they were these newspaper articles about their meetings and them discussing like closing adoption records and sealing adoption records in california and while they're having these conversations guess who's in the room right i talked with the uh I believe it was the daughter of a woman who was head of that. Um, a, the daughter had been adopted through Georgia Tan. <laughs> the, the adoptive mother, I guess, had been a client of Georgia Tan. Now, the daughter told me, and I have no way of knowing if she had it absolutely correct, but you know that her mother was being manipulated by George Tan, that the mother did not necessarily want to close those records, but it was sort of like George Tan's sort of satellite office. Like she had a dream, George Tan did that, you know, in every state there would be a Tennessee Children's Home Society satellite. And the closest she ever got to that was that one in California. I figured so, she was there whispering in somebody's ears, you know, and even yeah, if she wasn't, it would only make what she was doing easier you know yeah and she, she sent a lot of kids there she sent kids where the money was mm -hmm. often, you know what is the name of that um newspaper doc, newspapers dot com would i made. believe it's a part of ancestry.com okay um, newspapers.com i think but you can find all kinds of clips you can search with keywords and dates and cities and it's really it's really handy <laughs> I found, um, actually, I found the article about my birth mother's death um, through that newspapers.com. It was the only time I'd ever found an article about when she died. And uh, it's interesting because it says a different date that when my grandmother said and put on the headstone, like the day before, it was sometime overnight. So it was kind of murky, the details on that. But um yeah, it's fascinating to do that digging. And, you know, when you put in Georgia Tan and see all the hits that come up, and especially if you put like the date range before 1950, if you put after 1950, there's tons 
because it's all about the indictment that was going to happen and all the details coming out and the investigations and everything like that. But if you put it to like 1948, 49, and then you really get the other end of it. It's pretty interesting how, how that works in that search function. So I really, one of my favorite things that you did in writing this book, which uh, it's like genius, is the fact that before you go on to tell George's whole story, you answer the question, how in the hell did something like this happen? By explaining the history of Memphis and then, you know, the vi- the plagues and the, the corruption with Boss Krupp came and then Camille Kelly, who was not even an attorney. And like, you really set it up so that you're not even reading this going, how did this happen? How did this happen? You answered those questions and I'm sure they were rolling around in your head too, like while you were figuring this all out or else you wouldn't have included it because that's like the big thing. There's so many times people write books about, you know, violent people or serial killers and you're like, what happened to this person that made them this way? Or, you know, how were they able to go on in such a way for as long as they did? And you answer those questions and it's, it's like, it's genius. It really is. It, it's, I love it. Thank you. I really wanted to do it that way in in part because the whole story is so unbelievable. I know. That, you know, I had, it was, I had to show how it kind of grew almost organically. Mm -hmm. You had had those things going on in Memphis. You had the baby farms. You had the fact that adoption was not practiced. You had this woman who wanted to make money. She put the groups together. The The orphan trains. The orphan trains. And then you had women who were pretending to be pregnant, but their husbands wouldn't let them adopt children. So they were buying children from the babysitters. And Georgia Tan just said, ah, I got one group here, got one group there. I've got these children who are languishing on baby farms or ripe for the picking. And I've got these women who can't get pregnant but want children, but it's not acceptable to adapt children uh, in a society. So I'll put them together. The children are blank slates, born yeah. become anything you well, wanted to be. Then she goes into the kids' records and changes everything. So they're, they don't even have their true histories there. They're, yeah, and since dads weren't in the delivery room back then, they had no clue. Pardon me, I didn't, I missed Because that. like fathers weren't even in the delivery room. They had no idea, you know? Right, and she, and, and you know, as you know from reading the book, I mean, she knew who to target, who to target. And that was um, women who didn't have large support systems, most of them single mothers, most mm-hmm. likely, whether the father was involved or not. I mean, there were fathers who really fought to keep their children, but on the whole, I think she... Uh, she targeted single mothers. She even had an ad that ran, and I forget what Southern state, um, but I'm sure it wasn't the only one. Uh, young women in trouble, call Miss Georgia Tan. You know, you know what's fascinating so, is before her time, I, I did a research paper on um, Crittenden, you know, Florence Crittenden Holmes. Yeah. And I had to interview uh, the current director of the Critton Home and Wheeling. And she sent me this stuff in the mail. And in there was a packet from the 100-year anniversary. And it had the whole story 
of Florence Crittenden. And it started as like a family preservation thing. It was literally like, let's take these women that are, you know, a lot of them were sex workers or in other situations that were pregnant. And, you know, let's take them in and give them a place to live. And we'll like communally raise the children together while they get a job and get on their feet. And we'll teach them parenting skills and teach them, you know, and, and that's what it was. And then like after Georgia Tan's time, you know, or in it, it, it somehow changed when that stigma of single motherhood really started to get, and I'm sure she had something to do with that, you know, but like that whole altered sense of like, who did she think she was to decide that somebody couldn't be a good parent because they were poor, you know, and that has to come from her being born with that silver spoon in her mouth. And not having any control when she was growing up, you know, they, the way you said she, they, her parents wanted this life for her, you know, she wanted to be an attorney and her dad was like, no, you can't do that. And it's just crazy. Like there had to be some, I don't know, mental health going on with her of some sort, delusions yeah. of grandeur. I don't, you know, I don't know. I It's, you know, someone who knew her down there said, you know, she looked down on people who lived in those shanty houses or got their hands dirty for a living. Uh, she did, as I think I wrote in the book, you know, she thought, the well, she didn't say this, but I could tell she thought the world was inhabited by two very different types of people. Mm. She would use terms like people of the higher type. Yeah. She was placing her the children with people of the higher type. I'm sure she thought that the first mothers and fathers were people of the lower type. Yeah. They didn't deserve to have their children. One of her workers was still alive when I was interviewing her and she was adamant that everything Georgia Tan did was just great. And she said, you should have seen some of those farmhouses we went into. She said, just dirty, just this, just that. You know, it was, and I'm thinking, well, I'm glad she didn't work and uh, operate out of Buffalo, New York, because I grew up poor, more or less, and there were seven kids, and some of us would have gone away with Georgia Tan. Yeah. It's, so the deeper I got into it, the more I realized that she was a lot more than an old-time babysitter, that there's this important institution in our country and she basically, she shaped it. She almost invented it and she commercialized it. And now, as I understand it, um, children who are adopted still are issued false birth certificates now in many states. And I believe it's 36 or something like that. There is some degree of their being able to access the information on their birth certificates like you or an actual copy of a birth certificate and now with 23andme and, and all the genetic things it's not as important as it was but many of her victims you know who were trying to find each other died before they ever did find each other and I, when I started to write this book, I, you know, I got a book contract and I was going to give, uh, they give you a certain amount 
of money and then you pay it back out of the proceeds when you start the book starts to sell hopefully and but i beyond what i had been able to get for the article i i was like there was like a deadlock i could not get any more information i was going to give the money back to the publishing house and say that i couldn't write the book because the uh Georgia Tan's records were, because everything was so corrupt in Memphis, uh, there was a young attorney named Robert Taylor and he wanted to unmask her. But mm -hmm. I remember the governor, they all just treated him like a joke. Mm -hmm. Boss Crump had done something very bad to this attorney's father. And mm. so he was motivated to do that. So he hired, his name was Robert Taylor and he hired a, uh, detective or something to stand outside Georgia Tan's home, hmm. home with a capital H, not her private, although he might've done also the private residence, but at the orphanage yeah. after she died. And this detective was probably paid off by somebody else, unbeknownst to Robert Taylor, because George's attorney, George's attorney, and another lawyer went in one night and carried off cartons of papers. Now, Robert Taylor's supposed detective let him know later that this had happened. And, you know, Bob Taylor said, well, why'd you let it happen? Well, there was no real answer. So Robert Taylor tried legally to contest this. Mm -hmm. And there was a ruling that, and I, I should have read my own book this week, uh, that they could keep, Georgia Tan's attorney could keep these records for say three months, six months, something like that, and then return them. Well, you can imagine what was left. Yeah, I shredded everything. What, what was left Burned was it. in um, the Department of Vital Statistics and it was in Nashville. And I tried to get it through Freedom of Information Act and all that, but because it dealt with adoption and adoption is secret, I couldn't get that either. Meanwhile, anybody of any importance politically in Memphis mm -hmm. was either just patting me on the head and you know title off little girl, or you know outright lying. Yeah, and I, I had nothing, and. So I had an agent at the time and later I ended up with another agent for good reason, I think. So I told my agent, I'm going to give the money back, but as a last ditch thing, I'm going to run ads, little personal ads in newspapers. That's a good She's idea. Saying, it's very unprofessional. You can't do that. I thought, well, what have I got to lose? Right. So, you know, I got an 800 number for my phone. I ran ads in the New York Times. A lot of the kids went to New York, nothing. I got no response. Um, LA Times, nothing. USA Today, one response. Hmm. But small southern newspapers, I got over 900. Wow. Yeah. Memphis, Mississippi, Georgia, places like that. And they were all looking for their families. And so my ad just said, if you know anything about Georgia Tan or the Tennessee Children's Song Society, please call. That was it. Wow. So they were poor things, I guess, some of them thinking, you know, maybe I was 
an adopt. I hope I didn't mislead them in the adopted person. You know, so I was getting these calls and everybody put me on to somebody else. So I ended up with this enormous network, mostly composed of adopted people, but um, very few first mothers out of either shame or the fact that by then, since Georgia Tan started operating in the 20s, a lot of them were dead. Yeah. You know, a, a few, a few adoptive parents, but very few, but really hopefully a lot of uh, about six or seven pediatricians, some social workers that had fought against her and were never allowed to get anywhere while she was alive. And they were finally, like they were itching to get the word out. And so I spoke with a lot of people who were in the 1990s who were then in their 90s. Yeah. And I'm very grateful that I was able to talk to them because uh, these were doctors who would stand up, you know, see, stand outside the delivery rooms and see what was going on, you know, as a student doctor. And it was wow. amazing to me. And is that where you got like the story about the nurses, the women that would be disguised as nurses and would run in and steal the babies? Yeah. And also from so from a social worker and and from the doctors. Oh wow. I mean, one doctor said, you know, he he would he would just see it, you know, that he he would be there and there would be somebody dressed up like a nurse or a nurse who had been paid off and they would stand right outside the delivery room door. And the minute they would hear a baby cry, they would go in there and they would have the mother sign routine paper or, you know, something to get the child uh, milk or something, or, or else they would just tell the mother, and this was really awful that their baby had died. Yeah. And the mother would say, I heard a baby cry. And they would say there was another baby. And then the mother would say, I want to see the body. And, they would make out that like the state already put the baby in the ground because we know you're poor kind of thing. And I mean, the mothers knew this wasn't true. Yeah, of course. But they would go to the police station and nobody would help them. They would look for, you know, death certificates that they never could find. It, it was horrible. There were so many habeas corpus suits and none of them were found in favor of, of the parent who was looking for a child, or in some cases, I mean, some people lost three of their children to Georgia Tan. Yes, that's what happened with Judy. If you, I don't know if you got a chance to listen to that episode, but um, she was nine months old and she had two older siblings. And in fact, the photo of the little boy holding the ball that was in a syndicated ad, do you remember that? Yeah, that's her brother. I I might have interviewed her because I interviewed some of uh, his, I believe, some of his siblings. I mean, this book came out in 2007, so I'm not as. Yeah, it's been a while since you wrote it. Yeah. <laughs> but she um, she said he had a really rough time of it because of the fact that he was older there were like behavior issues, obviously trauma responses, and he got rehomed several times and was abused in a wide variety of ways. And he had a really, really hard time. And her sister was sent off to California, but she reunited with both, both of her siblings. I'm going to have to look at my own book because I, 
her mom and dad had split up and her dad stayed like i think on the family farm with three older kids and then the mom left with the three younger kids and went to memphis and she got targeted by georgia pretty much right away oh she would yep yep i'm glad at least the children found each other yeah when they were grown presumably yeah yeah yeah, they they did. She said um, when they had the reunion, whatever city it was, I forget. There was they made this big deal about it, um, and there was a, like they gave them a key to the city and things like that. There was this. It's in the podcast episode. I can't remember now because it's been a while since I've listened to it. I'm going. I'm going to. Yeah, I'm. I'm going to look that one up. That yeah, was- she lives in Houston now, and uh, but she's very she's a sweet lady. I like her a lot. She said she had really good adoptive parents, so. She was fortunate in that way. Well, if you have to be adopted, I guess it's good to have decent adopted parents. I mean, really, it's like the least you can ask for <laughs> in a way, you know. So um, can you tell me a story, if you remember, of a time where you felt like you were in danger when you were doing research? <laughs> yeah, well, I, you know, I, I guess I was just very naive or something. And I, I had been told by... Uh, a woman, I believe her name was Hazel Fath. She was a, um, a historian mm-hmm. in Memphis. And she said, you know, uh, register in hotels under a different name. Uh, you know, uh, the people who helped Georgia Tan, well, their children are running the town now. And she led, you know, she was trying to warn me. Wow. And, and I... I thought about it and I just, I did use my own name and I didn't particularly feel threatened in Memphis, but when I went to Mississippi, that was a different thing. And uh, I I went, my first visit that day was to a woman who had known, her family had known George Tan Mm -hmm. and it was kind of a bad day for me because I had flown into Memphis about five days earlier and my eardrum had burst on the plane's descent. And I didn't quite realize that at the time, but I did know that I I had a fever and a very bad earache and it was very, very hot. And I went to Hickory, Mississippi and there was no air conditioning anywhere and it was very, very hot. I went to see this woman and she was very, very sweet and kind. And um, I had uh, the way to going to her house I had stopped at a store but I thought was like a you know convenience kind of store and I bought aspirin and I asked for eardrops which of course they didn't have but she's pouring me iced tea and she said heard you tried to buy eardrops at the five and dime and I thought that's funny but I said yeah but she, she was nice and we she had arranged for a man who used to run errands for Georgia Tan's mother and Georgia Tan visited there often because some of the children would be temporarily stored at Georgia Tan's mother's house. Jeez. Yeah, yeah, right. And so the um, the man was saying, oh, you know, uh, he was very defensive. Um, I didn't know much about her. She was a boss man. She ordered me around. And then he's leaving and he says to me, heard you tried to buy eardrops at the five and dime. Wow. And I'm thinking, okay. 
So then this nice lady and I walk a few blocks over and I guess it was a five and nine, right? So you walk over to look at Georgia Tan, the house where Georgia Tan's mother had lived and where Georgia Tan had grown up. Yeah. And I'm I'm wondering as we pass houses, are like people peeking out their curtains, you know, because it seems like everybody knows my business here. Yeah. And knows that I wanted to buy your drop. And it was almost like, you idiot, why would you try to buy your drops at the five and dime? But I didn't know it was a five and dime anyway. So I just, wouldn't expect everybody to all of a sudden know what I was doing either. You know, like that's kind of creepy. Well, it was creepy. So uh, I just like it was so hot and we were outside Georgia Tan's, you know, I didn't want to go on the property. And uh, there was poison ivy on the ground and I'm very sensitive to poison ivy. So I'm wearing obviously sandals because it's hot and I'm trying and I'm treading carefully and I'm thinking, oh my God, I'm going to faint. I'm so hot. So I just said to the nice lady, thanks so much. And I went off to the next place. And the next place, um, I had really great hopes for this particular interview because the woman would would was like, if Georgia Tan were still alive, this woman would only be two, uh, two years younger. So she was a contemporary of Georgia Tan's. Gotcha. And she had sounded good on the phone. And everybody had told me that her mind was clear as glass, clear as glass, even though she was 90 or more. Yeah, I went into her. I went to her house, and she had two sons. She was in a wheelchair, and her sons flanked her, and they had bib overalls on, and they had their arms like this, you know, wow. like. And whenever I would ask a question of the lady, they would answer for her, and they wouldn't answer the question. They would say Georgia Tan's brother uh, liked to hunt possums. Uh, Georgia Tan's father built the, her house when there were no streets, just paths through the woods. And I'm thinking, I'm not, I'm feeling sick. And I'm thinking, I'm not going to get anything out of this because these men will not let their mother answer. Yeah. And so I got up to go and one of them came over to me and he put his hands on my shoulders and he shoved me down into my chair. Jeez. And he was like holding me down. And he said, uh, he started yelling about the Civil War and Yankees. Um, you Northerners, you, you Yankee, you, um, you're in here butting around, snooping around. And then his brother starts yelling about the Civil War and he uses the N-word and he says, oh my God. Um, you you uh, Yankees uh, brought the N-word down here. We used him and we took the rap and I'm, I'm looking at the old lady who didn't seem so sweet anymore. And I wrenched myself away. I didn't, I think they just wanted to scare me and, yeah. and to my next interview. Wow. So this one was in the woods and I thought Barbara, not so smart, but that lady had sounded really nice. So I went there and I knocked on the screen door and a man came forward and I said, I'm here to see. And he said, she doesn't want to talk. And then he he had a shotgun. Oh my God. And he, he pointed it at my face. And I just froze. Like that's what happens to me when I'm Yeah, really, what are you gonna do in that situation? Like I froze and then I ran to my car and I drove back to Memphis and I went back to Cleveland. <laughs> because at that point I was scared. I was so scared. Like I am a person who's only had one trap one speeding ticket in my life and I got it that day. I was 
going on the highway. I was, I was pulled over. I was going 88 miles an hour. And I thought briefly of saying something like, well, you know, this thing just happened to me. I'm scared. And then I thought, wait a minute, I'm still too close to that town. <laughs> no, I didn't say anything. Oh my God. I, oh, that is like nerve wracking. Did anybody so ever approach you in the library? Like you said, you saw people that were doing searching there, but like, did anybody ask you what you were doing, like librarians and stuff? And I, no, I told them because they, they could be of help to me. Yeah. Whatever, you know, so I, I told them and uh, I don't know how they felt about what I was doing, but they weren't rude or anything. Well, that's good. Yeah, I know librarians can be helpful. You just wander oh, yeah. in towns like that, you know, and it's so crazy that she died before she could be indicted. And then the fact that it wasn't even for what she was doing to the kids, it was about the money, you know, she, she would never have been indicted. They let her die. In other words, she would have brought down so many people in Tennessee. She had so many helpers. Right. It's fortunate for history's sake and spe specifically for the parents' sake and the children's sake that she died relatively young at the age of 59. They would have allowed her to operate forever, I think, until she died. And it was just very handy that she... She was diagnosed in about 1945 with cancer and she refused treatment. Hmm. And that whole, she died in on September 15th, 1950, but that whole summer she was very ill and hmm. they all knew it, you know? And then uh, a reporter in Nashville broke the story or they would have, you know, nobody, everybody was afraid to, I think it was kind of like, it had to have been like an open secret. Yeah. And she bribed she people with kids, right? Like she would give people a baby and then, you know, threaten to take it if they were lawmakers or something. Right. Right. Yes. And uh, she just, everybody knew she was in with boss Crump. That was the, I think the major stopgap you could lose your job you could be run out of town yeah do you want your kids to not have food on i mean when she would go out to the she wouldn't go necessarily but she would have her she i called them roundups where she would send like some of her workers and you know deputy sheriffs would come and they would go to a farm and they would look over the children and they would carry some off and they had papers signed by Judge Kim Kelly saying it was a poor home environment. Well, first of all, they it wasn't probably a poor home environment. Secondly, if it was, they would have taken all the children. No, they usually took the youngest ones or the cutest ones or or whatever. But these these deputy sheriffs and, and police, they were helping her rob their neighbors. You know, it was just like appalling to me. It is. It's truly appalling. They, I, it's so crazy that she operated for as long as she did. And like, she really knew what she was doing and how she set herself up. You know, it seems, of course, she had help, you know, with the corruption already there, Boss Crump, and then Camille, who was never even an attorney, right? She was some socialite. Yeah. 
Like, how does that work? How do you become appointed a judge when you're not? I don't understand that. Well, a lot of the judges around there weren't weren't attorneys. Uh, there there was a judge who various uh, doctors went to a judge named Judge Samuel Bates. Mm-hmm. This is around 1945 or something. And they were complaining about George Tan. You know, I mean, one of the doctors said, you know, 40 to 50 of her babies died in a three-month period because she wouldn't send the sick ones to the hospital. And another doctor said that he, for he, they were the doctors were volunteering their services trying to help these children, but they were getting nowhere because George Tan would just defy them. I and wonder why. Why she would defy them? Yeah, like why she let these babies die if they could be treated. Good question. I think they were just commodities. She, I think it came from pride because one doctor told me um, she she felt. She knew the babies better than we, the doctors, knew them. And she knew what the babies needed. And she knew more than the doctors. And one doctor said, you know, the one baby was sick and he prescribed an antibiotic for the baby. And and he found out later that she told the nurse not to give it to the baby, but to chart it as if it had been given. Mm -hmm. So she just, she was a very proud woman. And one thing I noticed was she was so class conscious or class crazy, really. But the children to her were basically nothing. They were like, if you had little, A little trinket or something. that you didn't think much of, right. But once they were adopted by a wealthy family, then she treated them on her visits to California with a certain amount of respect. Hmm. Yeah. And it was the same child. There's so much from what Georgia did that's pervasive today in adoption. It's crazy because like there are so many of us adoptees out there that are now trying to engage with like the rest of society and be like hey look here's what's going on here's why this is problematic because modern adoption practices are carrying on a lot of what she started because the agencies target specifically vulnerable isolated girls you know um i don't know if you saw the article the baby brokers that was in time magazine it's fantastic it was a couple years ago now um you know well there was a book called the baby brokers too oh really well this was a time magazine article that was written i think two years ago now and um one of my friends from tiktok cheyenne she was in that article she's also on my podcast and um you know she talks about how she was basically coerced she told them she changed her mind and wanted to keep her baby and they're like well you're gonna have to pay back for all the support that we've given you and things like that that are you know and then there's so much more there's a lot of moms that i've talked to they were never given copies of what they signed you know there was not complete informed consent about 
you know, this is what you're going to experience. This is what your baby may go through. They just try to paint this pretty picture of, you know, everything is going to be fine. And, you know, they promise open adoptions when they're not even legally enforceable in most states. And it's just, you know, it's interesting if you really look at the big picture and see how adoption has gone through time where there was like hardly any of it going on. And then Georgia Tan's on the scene and all of a sudden it's, it blows up. And like people don't really give a crap about us as adoptees when we're trying to educate society about the problems like we you know they they're like okay i'll make a video talking about infant adoption and how this aspect is unethical and pre-birth matching is not okay because it's i feel open adoption was introduced because the commodity was drying up because there was better access to birth control abortion Single motherhood was not stigmatized as much anymore. So there was less babies being given up for adoption. So now, okay, well, we'll do open adoptions because at least now you'll know where the baby's going. So girls that are really in a situation and really isolated, they'll feel better about it because in the past, you didn't even know where your kid went. Now you can get pictures and updates and this little carrot on a stick they're dangling. And so many of these moms that I've talked to you know, the adoption gets closed up and like within three years, that's it. Contact is over if it even happens at all. And and it's really messed up because I'm sure they don't get told that it's not legally enforceable. And no, I'm sure they don't. And, you know, so like as adoptees that are trying to advocate, as soon as we're talking about infant adoption, they're like, oh, what do you mean then? Kids should just stay with abusive parents. Or they should end up in dumpsters. And it's like, why is that the only solution? You know, it's yeah. like, and people speak over adoptees all the time. I know several adoptees on TikTok that talk about how they were abused in their homes. And people were like, oh, well, at least you had people taking care of you. Or, you know, everybody experiences trauma. And it's just so dismissive. People just, you know, they love seeing these videos of this is the first time we met our son and the baby's put in their arms and everybody's crying and and like nobody's thinking about the mom in the other room who's probably bawling her eyes out nobody's thinking about the fact that that child's now going to grow up legally discontinued disconnected from their biological family and possibly you know until they're of age to go look for themselves and there's just so much wrong with it and like adoptive parents that are adopting due to infertility sometimes are really sensitive like and they have a fear that like my mom was literally and i mean they had they had my sister before me and then for nine years they were unable to conceive or you know my mom had a couple miscarriages and so when I was adopted, it was my mom always had this fear that they were going to take me away again. Like, I, you know, it's like this irrational fear. And then when I told her I wanted to search or if I asked questions, uh, it was like, 
Well, when I was younger and I would ask questions, she didn't have anything to tell me because it was a closed adoption and it would get dismissed. Well, it doesn't matter because you're ours now. And it's like, okay. And I always felt like a puppy because I didn't have like a pregnancy and birth story. I had the day we got you home, you know, the day we brought you home, the day we met you. It's just, there's just so much that I wish like society as a whole would open their eyes and be like, oh, well, maybe we should listen to this community because they've actually lived the experience of being adopted. And yes, some people it doesn't affect as profoundly as others, but they're still like, things could be done so much better. There's no oversight, like federal oversight for adoption. Like if you go to the federal government and ask how many kids were adopted last year, they probably don't know, you know? That to me is kind of troubling. Yeah. My own brother went to my high school with me and we didn't know we were siblings. Oh my God. The first thing my adoptive mom said was like, well, it's a good thing you guys didn't like each other. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And and now that's going on with like donor conceived people. And, you know, they have like these doctors that replaced the sample with their own and there's these sibling pods that are you know a hundred or more it's crazy it's scary yeah that's scary that's a time a tangent but anyway like i've just been learning more about this and for years i've been saying these people that are donor conceived are going to be facing similar issues that we do with identity crisis and wanting to know medical history and and all these kind of things and that's where it was fantastic to go to that summit because that's exactly what it was. It was right to know. And um, National Association of Adoptees and Parents coming together for a conference. And it was amazing. And um, they're going to do it again next year in Colorado. So I I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm going to try to get there. But But yeah, this book is so important and has really it's it's a lot of fuel for me to see because it really fills in that gap and what the hell happened where adoption was not popular and all of a sudden exploded and you know there was also dr hicks and i'm for sure there was a few others that were doing the baby selling thing but i don't think anywhere as prolific as her there was somebody named bessie bernard i think near new york yeah, I've heard about, I've got to look into that one too. Yeah, I don't know much about that, I, but around that time. Really. Yeah, but it just, it was like ripe for exploitation, you know. It's like the poor and the um, unsupported or unprotected are always the ones yep. taken advantage of in every situation. Yeah. Yep. And it's particularly awful when you're dealing with people children you're not just like keeping i don't know uh somebody from getting a decent job that's bad enough mm-hmm. but to take their child or to yeah and then when you think about the double standard where an expectant mom that's in a bad situation might reach out for help And people, you know, will shun her, look down on her, get a job, do this. But yet people that are raising 30 to $60,000 for adopting a baby 
you know, their church will support them. They'll have bake sales. They'll, you know, have yard sales. They'll have GoFundMes. And that's okay, you know, that this couple is raising money to adopt and how quickly society will donate. You know, you go look at these GoFundMe campaigns for hopeful adoptive parents. And so many of them are like close to their goal. People just give them money. Like, oh my how God. about we that flip that around? You know, it's, that's why I love Renee Gellin and Saving Our Sisters because she's trying to help, you know, women that are in that situation. And, you know, it's, it's an amazing organization. And I don't know if you know about this yet, but Lisa Elaine Scott is a filmmaker. Um, she just started a campaign um last week i just had her on the podcast um she is making a documentary film called all you have is love and i always forget the second part of the title but it's about exposing the adoption industry and how it exploits vulnerable and unsupported women and um it's they just got greenlit they got their first chunk of money and she's going to be traveling this summer and filming interviews and um I'm very excited for this project because it's it's like a continuation of the baby thief, really. You know, you gave us this and now she can, you know, she's going to go further with it and expose what the agencies really do to people. So. I hope that I hope that her documentary gets a lot of attention and that I, people, I, I hope people outside the adoptee adoption community. Yes. Yes. That's why she's, it's going to cost her $250,000 to make this film because she wants to make it a very high quality where it will be picked up, you know, by the mainstream. And, you know, um, I'm not sure what her plan is for how she's going to be distributing it, but that's her main thing is that it is of the highest quality with all of the facts, you know, and, um, she's working with, um, a lot of first mothers and they're talking about their experiences with how they were treated and things like that. So I feel like you and her should probably talk. (laughs) What's her last name again? Lisa Elaine Scott. Okay. She's on Facebook. You can find her. Okay. And um, the documentary is called all you have is love. And you can find that on YouTube also. And um, you can see some little concept trailers that she's put up. So it's it's going to be just as important um, as as your book is. And the amount of information that you gathered for all of us that are out here flapping our yaps, talking about adoption all the time is is invaluable. I hope it's given something to the world. You know, I. I I feel like. I wish I had gotten to the story earlier than I did because I would have more sources would have been alive and all that. But at least I felt like it was a piece of history that had been, you know, shoved under the rug. Absolutely. I'm sure Memphis probably hates your book because they're like, oh my God. (laughs) They don't like, you know, you know, the the town pride kind of thing. Cause it's like their dark secret, you know, that they were kind of probably hoping would slip away you know into the cracks and and you were like oh no ma'am you are going to be held accountable even after you're dead (laughs) yeah i think at this point they've gotten 
to the point where, I mean, it's almost like Georgetown is one of their eccentric uh, people. As long as as long as it's only Georgetown that was bad, but I don't think probably they like to be, you know, reminded or told that she had a lot of help. Yeah, you know? yeah. Yeah, it's it's appalling the the stories that I I just can't. And then they made um that movie with Mary Tyler Moore. Was that based off? That was based off the article because that was before you even wrote the book, right? Is it wasn't? I don't think it was based off my article. Uh, oh, I think they uh, got the rights to a woman I ended up interviewing uh, actually before the movie came out. But oh, then okay. it was Bailey Miller, and she was a social worker in Nashville and she was brought into Memphis to try to make sense of some of the paperwork after Georgia Tan died. And so if I recall that movie, which I only watched when it came out, but there was a social worker in that movie. Mm -hmm. And I think that was based on Valley Miller, whether how much of it was, you know, changed or okay. you know, who knows. But and, that makes a lot of sense. And they gave that movie a happy ending because if I remember, um, an adoptive mother um, finds out that her child, the child she's raising, had been stolen and gives the child back. I don't think that ever, I had not heard of, of that ever happening. And I can say it probably would have been very hard for someone to do, but I don't think it happened. But, you know, at least there were, for the film, it gave it a happy ending. So. Yeah, it really lacks a lot of... I watched it last year, I think, because it's up on Amazon Prime. And I was like, I can't believe I never heard of this one or never saw it. And so I did. I watched it and I was like, they're leaving so much out because it was after I read your book already. And I was like... They didn't know. They didn't I know. know. That's where I'm saying it makes they sense. They were still now. at the stage. She was an old-time baby thief. That, mm -hmm. That's where I started also. But then, you know, they didn't yeah. go on because the movie was already made. And, you know. It was more like a big conspiracy than just a, you know, just a baby thief. Because there were so many people involved in it. Yeah. Wow. Well, I want to really thank you for your time. And thank you for being willing to talk to me on here. And thank you for this book because it's... I, I've been totally fangirling over this idea. I was like, I get to talk to the lady who wrote the book. I was so, I've been so excited about this because it's, I like I said, I can't uh, over us overstate how important of a book it is. So you're very and, kind. Thank you. And uh, trying to keep it alive, you know, like people need to know about it. I, you know, I have a thing where, um, when I find out about a book. I will let my library know and ask them. And they already have a pretty good um, section on adoption. There's a lot of the, you know, books for adoptive parents. But there is, um, there were, I was surprised that there was several books in there already that were from adoptee perspectives as well. And, uh, but I do, it's always a good thing. Go to your library, you know, for anybody that's listening and request books by you know, adopt the authors or books that, you know, talk about like the baby thief and reveal, you know, because the more 
books that are in libraries, I know people don't use them like they used to, but if they're there, you know, the more likely it is somebody will pick up a book and, and learn something about adoption they didn't know before. So right. I try to, I like to support authors in that way, you know, cause it gets more books purchased in, in the stores. Yeah. Do you know how many times has it been reprinted? It hasn't been reprinted. It hasn't. Well, they changed the cover on it then. Because well, the original. That's, that's the British version. Oh. The it, it came out in Australia, the United States, and the UK. And they okay. each had different covers. Oh, okay. And I, I think I could... in the British one, I think the hardcover and paperback had different covers. Yeah, I remember seeing one that had like the one that they had at my library, because they already did have a copy of your book there um had the green cover with like red lettering i think and yeah, um yeah that's the united states yeah and i was like okay i need to get a copy of this book i think i bought it off of amazon it's interesting that i got it english <laughs> version <laughs> of it but uh yeah well you never know sometimes with amazon so but anyway again like i just wanted to say thank you so much for you know what you've done and um i know you're still kind of around in the adoption community and i think that's that's really great and um yeah so have a great rest of your day and um i will let you know how it goes thank you thank you very much action under each episode where you can leave comments about the episodes um, people also send my Facebook page messages as well, and that's fine. And I have mentioned before, if people start leaving feedback, I will include a segment where I start reading them. So here's a couple that I got via Messenger on Facebook. Excellent podcast. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We need someone like you out there. There are some hosts that talk so soft and are so timid that I can't even listen. Great podcast. I'll be listening to all of them from now on. I, I really appreciate that feedback because I often feel like I talk too much. I have ADHD and I tend to ramble and go on tangents. And then I feel like I'm repeating myself because I tell each new um, guest things about my story. And I'm like, did I say this on another episode? So I really appreciate this feedback so much. Um, here's this one. Uh, Hi, Jen. I listened to the podcast with Janet, Natural Mother, and found it to be very interesting and meaningful especially the segment where she described her baby's hand wrapped around her finger. As another mother, that got to me. Also, I was really moved by how you shared your feelings on wanting something to be reminded of your mother when you shared your plans on having a tattoo. Very moving. May you and all of us affected by adoption have peace in our lives. Thank you for including other mothers. Of course, they are such a huge part of this. So much of society discards the first moms because they were just the, the breeder or the vessel or whatever. The way they seem to look at it in society. Birth mothers are amazing the moment the baby is relinquished and sometime later then if they realize what they did was they feel was a mistake or they realize they were coerced or something and they speak out about adoption people say the most horrible horrible things to them and it, it hurts me so bad to see that um so thank you for this feedback and i did eventually get a tattoo of my mom's handwriting 
come. And then here's another one. It says, CJ's message is so important. My son lost his only child to adoption too. Nine years later, my son died from suicide. Abolish adoption. Legal guardianship when absolutely necessary. Never adoption. Uh, that's just that's so heartbreaking. I can't, I can't even fathom losing a child, um, not knowing where they are, if they're safe or anything like that. And oh, I, I think that's all I have to say about that one. But thank you so much for the feedback. I really, really appreciate it. It means so much to me because otherwise, I don't know if this podcast is, you know, striking a chord with people and they like it. Or if I'm just spinning my wheels out here. So I, I appreciate any feedback that I get. And um, if if you listen to me on Spotify or any other places, please subscribe so that you get notified when I post new episodes. Because I'm not always consistent, but I'm going to be trying to work on that a lot more now. Um, so thank you for listening.